Good morning and welcome to Veritas. I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we get into the word this morning, um, we're coming to the end of 1 Corinthians, this book uh, that we've been studying all school year, and it's been so instructive to us. Um, Just before we jump in, I want to give you a quick overview of where we're going next week. Drew Stevenson, uh, pastor at Salt City Church, he was sent out from here uh, about four years ago to plant a church in Minneapolis. They're doing awesome. He's coming to speak next week, which is great. Uh, We've got the usual three service times. And then the weekend after that, May 16th, we start our two service times uh, at 8.45 and 10.15. Uh, for the rest of summer as many of our students go and um, just the two services for the summer. And then um, uh, we're going to be studying through characters of the Bible uh, for some of the summer through, through May, part of June. And then we're going to get into Second Timothy and then Hebrews this fall is what we're going to be studying through. That's our, our pattern here at Veritas as we just, uh, just teach through the Word. Uh, but we are going to have a little bit of an interlude. And this morning, uh, what I want to do is you know, we're the generation that has a short attention span. We scroll through things. I think the average uh, view on a video in Instagram is like less than three seconds, right? So we, we like to scroll th- through things. We like the next thing. And uh, I think that there's a danger in that with uh, doing that with God, right? Next thing, next thing. Uh, sometimes it's good for us. Deuteronomy 8 reminds us that we need to be a people who remember and reflect, we need to look back and we need to stop sometimes and say, hey, let's, let's call a timeout and just look back and say, what did God do in us this past year? How did God's word shape the kind of people we are going to become? And then that gives us the ability to look ahead and say, man, this is the kind of church we want to be. These are the kind of people we want to be. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look back and reflect on the whole book of 1 Corinthians and say, what are some of the big themes and lessons that we learned? Now, in each of these passages that I'm referencing, we're not going to go into great detail and really unpack that because that's what we've been doing all year. If you have questions about any of these passages, we taught through all of these texts in detail, and so you can go back online and find these sermons. All right, we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. There's been a report to Paul that there are divisions in the church. Now we know this that divisions come naturally for us as humans, right? We don't have to work hard at this. It's just naturally in us. But here's what Paul's saying. Division in the church is not an option. If you are a Christian, disunity is not an option. This is a problem for me. I don't know if it is for you because I'm thinking to myself, that's so idealistic. That's so, so much wishful thinking on Paul's behalf. I mean, how do you think you're ever going to get unity among human beings? Well, apparently Paul is saying it's not just possible, it's required for Christians. And he goes on to talk about how it's possible. Look at, ver- at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, 
I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Here's what I think Paul's saying to us. In the world, think about how the world gets unity. The world gets unity on getting power and trying to fix the system, right? To the world, the world mindset says, see, all the problems in our world exist out there. And what we need to do is we need to get our political leaders in place and we need to fix the system. Because if we can get the right system, then we'll get this right outcome, right? Now, here's the obvious problem with that. Any system that you create that Mark Arendt is a, pro- is a part of will never be the right system, right? Because I'm in it. Like, I'm the problem in the system. As long as I'm in it and my sinful heart is in it, I'm gonna, you can have a perfect system and I'll mess it up because I'm a sinner. Just like all of you and everyone else. Like, Christians say, the problem is not out there and if we could just fix the system, not that that's anything wrong with fixing the system. Yes, we need just laws, all those things. But the real problem is in each of us. It's in the human heart. And the problem is called sin. That's what causes divisions. The whole story of the Bible is how human beings first got separated. Remember Cain and Abel, the murder? Like, first thing after sin, there's division, there's hate, there's tribalism, there's... And this whole story is about how we as humans can come back to God and come back to each other. And it's the story about the cross of Jesus Christ. So here's the big idea of 1 Corinthians if you're taking notes. Unity is only possible through the cross. And each of these points that we're going to make has a picture. If you like pictures more than words, draw these pictures, right? It's a picture of a triangle. And at the top is a cross. And these two people, as they come closer to the cross, they come to each other. Unity is only possible through the cross. And anything else that you put at the top of that triangle will actually repel people and cause greater division. And so the book of 1 Corinthians is about all the things that the Corinthians put ahead of the cross of Christ. And so we're going to go through and we're going to look at five things that they replace the cross with. And you might call this sermon uh, five, how to destroy the church in five easy steps. How to destroy the church. If you were just wanting, you're like, Mark, hey, I'm new here and I was actually hoping to destroy the church. I'm going to give you five ways that you could definitely tear this thing apart. All right. So start taking notes. Here it is. Well, let's look at the first thing, chapter 3, verse 3. He says, For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Paul, or Apollos, what then is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, 
He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Okay, step number one to destroying the church. Make church leaders more important than Jesus. Make church leaders more important than Jesus Christ. He says here, you are, when you say, I follow this leader, or I follow that leader, you're acting like humans. That's what humans do. Like, I follow this political leader. I voted for this person. I've got all these bumper stickers on my car. I listen to this podcast. I listen to this doctor or this epidemiologist, or I listen to this whatever, fill in the blank, news source. And we, we put those things at the top, and guess what happens? You're like, well, I don't follow that person. I don't follow that person. And so it actually divides humans in the church. Brothers and sisters, when we make the presenting issue of the church, the church leader that we follow, I think that obviously putting a celebrity preacher or celebrity person at the top is obviously stupid because all of those people are going to die, right? Jesus Christ is a much better person to put at the top because he's going to be alive forever. Like, I'm going to die, uh, you know, next person in, right? It, yeah, that's what's going to happen. And Jesus Christ will still be Lord and the pastor, the senior pastor of Veritas Church and of his church universal. So when we put people at the top, it divides the church. Now, I've seen this this year um, I think Paul's addressing the spiritual arrogance that can come, and it's crept into my heart, for sure. You guys, this uh, couple weeks ago, I had an interaction with a brother in Christ uh, who leads another church, and, and I had had bad thoughts toward this brother and kind of some things that were going on, and in my interaction with him, it's like the Holy Spirit was saying to me, Mark, your words about this brother show how arrogant and proud and how much you tear apart the church when you act like you have it figured out. You guys, this has been by far the most stressful year of ministry um, for, for me and I know for church leaders all over the world. Nobody knew how to navigate our world during this, this time with COVID and all the social issues and political turmoil. And nobody really knew what they were doing, right? Everyone was just trying their best. And so for me to step in and put, yeah, this Veritas or substitute it with whatever other leader. Oh, this church out in this state. Yeah, they really got it figured out. But think about if God's word changed us. Think about if we realize, you know what? We need to take our church leaders out and put Jesus. What kind of people would we become next week? What kind of church would we be? I think we would replace our criticism toward other churches and judgmentalism with prayer and praying for the people that are out there that are trying their best to lead the church 
through such hostile times, praying for them. God, help them. Give them wisdom. Okay, next one, chapter 5. If we skip ahead a couple chapters, we're going to find in chapter 5, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this. Brian Dermody preached a great message on this. You can go back and listen to it, but imagine this. Imagine I come to you and say, I need you to pray for me. You're like, what's going on? You're like, well, here's the thing. I'm so confused. Um, I've got division in my marriage. My wife and I are not unified seemingly about anything. Like we are constantly fighting, and I cannot understand. I cannot figure out for the life of me why my wife and I cannot have unity. And you're like, well, well tell me more. Like, what, what are the kinds of things that she says to you? And she's like, well, here's the thing. Like, you know, I, I commit adultery only once a month. And, and seriously, she makes such a big deal about it. Okay, you'd be like, okay, duh, right, duh. That's what Paul is saying. Like, when we have sin in our lives that goes unconfessed, when we hide sin, like these addictions, it could be sexual sin, pornography, like if you're looking at pornography, you are no different than the example that I just gave, right? If you are hoarding your wealth. It's no different than the example that I just gave. If you are cheating, lying, stealing, right? Being like having obvious selfishness in your life where that is going unconfessed. This is the second picture. Step number two to destroying the unity of the church is make your desires more important than Jesus. Your desires being like, obviously you have good desires too, right? But, but I'm talking about the selfish kind. They're like, I want what I want and I don't care what I have to do to get it. Like that's the most important thing for me is getting what I want. You know, the world gets unity around, hey, you do you. Like you do whatever you want. And it's not just you do you. It's that, it's a, hey, I'm going to do me and I need you to applaud me for it. So the world gets unity around approving and applauding each other for whatever sin, lifestyle, whatever they live. That's not how it is in the church. Like, of course, we accept everyone. No matter where you're at, no matter what brought you here this morning, we accept you. You could come into our home and eat with us, and we accept you. But we do not approve of everything. I hope that you don't approve of my sinful life. If you found that I'm like embezzling money or doing something like that, I hope you don't approve of that, right? You can accept me and not approve of that behavior. That's what Paul's saying. We need to make the cross the center. You know, think about the freedom that comes when you come into the light and confess your sin and get forgiven. You guys, 
often church is the one place that you're not allowed to be a sinner. You've got to have it all together. But I say church is the only safe place to be a sinner because it's our sin that qualifies us to be Christians, right? Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick, right? So when we take communion, we're not coming to the table to tell Jesus how righteous we are. We are coming like prodigal sons and daughters, and we are coming back to the Father, confessing our sin and saying, Jesus, we have put so many of our own selfish desires above you, and we come to the cross. And as we meet at the communion table and we look next to another sinner who's being forgiven, that frees us. It unleashes forgiveness and freedom into our lives, and it empowers us to give grace and forgiveness to the people around us. And that brings unity when we meet at the cross. The third thing, chapter 7 through 10, we saw Paul going into this conversations about disputable matters related to sex and marriage and all these things, but he gets to chapter 8, and he says, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. See, in their time, there was this really controversial topic that was dividing people. It's like, hey, can we eat meat that's been sacrificed in the pagan temple of like Zeus or Aphrodite or whatever? Can we eat that, that meat? And some people said no. Some people said yes. And they would start arguing. And he's like, hey guys, we all have knowledge. Like we all have opinions and facts. And when you try to power up on the other person with your facts, you're actually gonna destroy them. You're gonna tear them down. We have seen that, haven't we, this last year? Well, if you knew what I knew about epidemiology, then you would do dot, dot, dot. If you knew what I knew about viruses or medicine or social justice or racial issues, like if you knew what I knew, you guys, that thinking will absolutely destroy our church and all the churches, right? This is the second step to destroying the church. Make your opinions more important than Jesus. Your, Paul's saying, your, he goes, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he, know, he does not know as he ought to know. What he's saying is, this know-it-all attitude will destroy our unity because it makes you the final judge and authority. And of course, um, nobody wants to make you their Lord and final judge, right? And sometimes that's what we do when we beat each other up with our opinions. And hey, if you're the smartest person in this room, then you're in the wrong room, okay? <laughs> Find a different room to be in, right? Because we, none of us are omniscient. None of us know all the things that God knows. And sometimes as Christians, we think that because we're Christians and we know God who's omniscient, that we also should be omniscient. And we think because we know truth, we should know all truth. And here's the thing, the gospel unifies us because it reminds us, hey, 
we don't have to be right about everything, just a few things, right? There's a few things we actually do have to be right about, but we don't have to be right about everything. Have you ever heard this? Um, There are first order, second order, third order issues. Have you ever heard about that before? First order issues in the church are issues of doctrine that everyone has to agree on in order to be a Christian, right? You could, you have to agree on these things. So for example, Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, That's actually something that you need to believe if you're a Christian. Like if you don't believe that, then you can't say, I'm a Christian. And there are first order issues of doctrine that doesn't matter what church you go to, you've got to agree on that because that's what Christians believe, our creeds, our doctrine. Second order issues are really issues of how we do church, right? We do church differently than other churches in this town or other churches in parts of the globe, right? Like how we do membership, how we do baptism. Those are convictions that we have as a church and the way we see things. But we don't think that everybody has to have our view on baptism to be Christian, right? Not everyone has to do our way of doing membership, right? Because we know we don't get everything right in our church. So there's a humility on second order issues, but it's okay to have convictions on those things, right? But then there are third order issues. Those would be issues like school choice, vaccines, social justice, right? Issues that you as a Christian may have convictions on. And again, that's okay for you to have personal convictions on third order issues. But when, when you make those issues the basis of unity, it will actually destroy our church. So we said back in August, some of you guys remember when we, when we moved um, from the outdoor services inside, we talked about our guiding principles we welcome you, we trust you, and we sent a letter out and explained how we're making decisions on these things, on these controversial issues. Our decision was we don't want to put anyone in a situation where they're going to have to violate their conscience uh, to be a part of Veritas on these issues. Okay. You know, it's, it's amazing. I can't think of any better way to cause division than a good mask or vaccine argument, Right? I mean, can you imagine? I, I have this theory that there's like, um, that Satan made a bet in hell uh, at the, in 2019. He's like, hey guys, uh, this virus coming out and do, here's the thing. Here's a competition. I want, us, I want you to figure out what's the smallest possible thing you can get these humans to just fight over. And the demon one that came up with the piece of cloth over the face, like the mask thing, like, like he's like, dude, you won. How did you do that? And he's like explaining, oh yeah, you know, you know humans in there. Like, I'm sure that there had to be a competition. Like, how did we get divided over the smallest possible things? And so here's a vision to live into if we're to make Jesus the center here of our unity. What if 1 Corinthians taught us to be gracious to people who disagree with us. Remember, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Remember, love is patient. So when someone comes at you with their hot take on whatever controversial issue, and it's clear they don't want to have a conversation, they just want to power up on you with their knowledge, you can accept them. You can listen to them. You don't need to correct them. 
but do talk about them when you get home, okay? That was a joke, okay? Um, right? We're just gracious people. Just talk about them when they're not in the room. Um, all right, moving on. So where are we? All right, chapter 12, skipping along, we get into this section on 12.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, verse 7, he says, a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. Here's what he's saying. Everybody, when you're a Christian, God gives you a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit comes in you and he empowers you to use your gift to serve the body of Christ. It's for what Paul says, the common good. Everyone benefits when you become a Christian because you become a part of this body of Christ. And in chapter 14, verse 3, he, he explains the point of these gifts. He says, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. God has gifted you, and there's somebody in this room that needs a good word this morning. There is somebody in this room that is grieving. There is somebody in this room that is hurting. There's somebody in this room that needs some hope. There's somebody in this room that's like feeling loss. There's somebody in this room that's, you know, I'm going to give this whole God thing one more chance. There's somebody in this room that's sick. There's somebody in this room that's rejoicing. And they need someone to share the joy that they have. And I'm one person, and there is no possible way I'm going to meet all your needs. But if I come into a conversation and think, you know, how can I strengthen, encourage, console this person? You know, here's the point here, what the Corinthians were doing. If you want to destroy the church, here's what you could do. Step number four, make your needs more important than Jesus. Make your needs. So when I say your needs, what I'm saying is be a Christian consumer and come into church with your spiritual shopping cart, your grocery cart, and treat the church like Costco or Target or, in my case, Aldi, right? They, they meet all my needs and it's cheap, right? So you're coming into church and you're like, hey, uh, I'll take a little of that, a little of that, like, and I leave and, you know, oh, you know, I might leave and the comment is, man, I can't believe they raised the prices on whatever, or I can't believe they were all out of, you know. It's like Veritas treating us like a grocery store. One-stop shop for all your needs. Like, that would be a great way to destroy the church um, because you're making yourself the focus. The cross frees us to see other people and to serve them and to encourage them and build them up and say, you know what? Yes, marriage is difficult. I'm going to pray for you. I am going to pray for you that Jesus helps you. Yeah, life is hard, right? 
This stage of life is hard, but I'm going to pray for you. Maybe you're an older person, and you've, you've seen a lot, and you're going to speak life and hope into a younger person. God has gifted you to build up the body of Christ. And in chapter 13, we love that we learned that love is the glue that holds this whole body together, right? As we look outside of ourselves to serve others. And we are like a body of Christ. You know, Paul uses this metaphor of the body and he's saying, you know, your body is made up of all kinds of organs and cells and different, you know, your, your system. It's like a bunch of systems working together, but you never think of your body as a hundred or a thousand different parts, right? You think of yourself as one part. And so Paul's saying, hey, that's how we are under the head of Christ. We are a body, and for the body to function, each individual part needs to serve each other for the common good. So take that little gift that God has given you and use it to strengthen, encourage, build up the body of Christ. So now we reach the crescendo of the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read starting in verse 54. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory. Where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The Corinthians were making this world their focus to the point where they were denying the resurrection of the body. And he's saying, guys, that's the basis of our Christian hope is the new heavens and new earth. Jesus is going to come back and restore all things. Don't just focus on the here and now. Don't just focus on your spiritual euphoric experiences. Look ahead to the life to come. This world is not all there is. The last step, step number five, to destroying the church would be to make this world more important than Jesus. Make this world your focus. Forget about eternity and focus just on what's here and now. Forget about your new body in heaven and focus on this body on earth. Like, my physical health is all there is, and make that the center. Yeah, that would be a great way to destroy unity in the church. Our hope, as we move closer to the cross, we see that that cross is empty, right? Jesus is not still on it. It's, he has been raised from the dead, and that is the basis of our hope as Christians. And with Jesus as our hope, And our hope in the resurrection, it unifies us by reminding us that the best is yet to come. We learned that we are, like Paul, 
Paul's teaching us how to taunt death. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, death, is your sting? So I want to ask this morning, what are you afraid of? Most of us would say death, afraid of death. Paul's saying, when Jesus Christ is your focus, you have nothing to fear. And this actually binds us together in unity. Um, So my parents uh, are part of a church in Omaha, and this past week, um, a young woman in the church, 36 years old, passed away. Here's what this young woman, Christy, wrote on her Facebook page just a few days before she passed away. She said, you may hear that Christy Curie is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. I will be out of this broken, cancer-ridden body and into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. And then a few days later, after, after she passed away, her husband posted this on Facebook. He said Christie's favorite book was the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. And in the last book, the last chapter, he says this. This will be on the screen. And for us, This is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Church, as we make Jesus Christ our focus, it transforms our perspective because this life is not all there is. We have an eternal hope, a living hope that's alive. And this Hope in the resurrection unifies us as followers of Jesus. We're going to close uh, with a time of communion. And as we do this, and worship teams are going to come out and, and just begin to, to lead us in song here. And uh, here's the thing. Um, as, I, as I mentioned before, um, only sinners are welcome to come, right? I mean, this is, this is our hope. If you came in here and you need hope, this is the ultimate encouragement to you is that Jesus Christ came. He was crucified on a cross for your sin. He loved you so much. He wasn't just going to leave you in your sin. He came. He died. The bread represents the body of Christ broken for you, right? The, the juice, the cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you on the cross And if you believe that message, maybe you've never taken communion before. You don't have to be a member of our church. We just want you to come. We invite you to come. And let's do this in remembrance of Jesus. Let's let's pray together.
So I want to give you um, just a moment here as we, before we take communion, to just create some sacred, sacred space here to reflect on this question. What have you put at the top of that pyramid in your life? What have you put above Jesus Christ? Or maybe it's, we talked about church leaders or your opinions about church, resentment toward another church over the way they handled something, or maybe it's your opinions about what's going on in our world. Or maybe it's sin in your life. Uh, Jesus wants to be at the center of your life. It's in losing your life that you will find it. And so I invite you to come to the table and just take, take as much time as you need just to reflect and ask the Lord to examine your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to shine a light and just show you. And then let's come and, and when you're ready, do this in remembrance of Jesus.